Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, hello. Welcome back to OMD Daily. Today it's June 2nd, 2020. And today I will be talking about a company I researched. So today I read about Workday and I went through the 2019 annual report, proxy statements, and some, I'd say, kind of articles on its culture and learning more about yeah the whole kind of culture side organization culture management how they view the company etc and there's also kind of personal anecdotes from my own experience regarding the company so yeah if you were to if you enjoyed the past kind of company related episodes then this would be something similar i'm going to use phil fisher's 15 uh, point checklist once again as the backdrop i think that's Something I'm going to stick to at least for the time being. So we'll kind of start off with the first checklist item. Um, does a company have products or services with sufficient market potential to make p- possible a sizable increase in sales for at least several years? So this is kind of the reinvest uh, reinvestment capability plus what does the company do kind of question. And so... For those of you who are not familiar with Workday, what does it do? Well, the company provides enterprise cloud applications for finance and human resources. Uh, if you're if you are uh, aware of ERPs or you know the company Oracle or SAP, Workday is one of those companies. <laughs> it competes with Oracle and SAP, who are the two kind of Goliath juggernauts in the ERP scene. And if you if you still don't understand what that is, well, so when you work in a company, um, you know some there's a software that does all the human capital management stuff. You know, when you post new jobs, talent management, workforce planning, um, payroll, and then there's all the, the whole kind of accounting center where, you know, doing all the revenues, payables, account reconciliation, all the financial report printing, all that, all that stuff, it's all done on software. And usually, in the past, Oracle and SAP have been the two big ones that nearly all the big companies used. Workday is kind of the new kid on the block. It was co-founded in 2005 by the founder of PeopleSoft, and his name is David Duffield, I believe. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. And the VP who worked on PeopleSoft for 11 years after it was acquired by Oracle, uh, his name is Anil Busri. Uh, I hope I... Yeah. If I butchered it, I'm sorry, Neil, if you're listening to the podcast, but those two are the co-founders of Workday and Workday kind of, it makes sense that it focused on the human capital management, the HR piece, because, um, you know, the two founders, co-founders worked on PeopleSoft. And I guess this kind of might require some history if you are not a ERP geek like I am, um, Actually, I'll take you down a little bit down memory lane because it kind of works with my personal experience because I started out my career as an accountant. And when you're an accountant, you work a lot with finance ERPs. So I dealt a lot with Oracle and PeopleSoft. PeopleSoft is the human capital management uh, 
product for Oracle and Oracle didn't build it themselves. They bought it. Uh, PeopleSoft used to be a separate company. And so that's what Oracle's kind of been known to do. They, you know, continuously build out this quote unquote suite where it first had the finance ERP and then you have human capital and then you have like supply chain. And so you continuously add these various systems on top and you make it stickier and stickier. That's kind of the ERP model. That's been the playbook for a while. And so PeopleSoft naturally, since it's an HR system, um, when the founder of PeopleSoft left Oracle um, with one of the VPs that was part of the PeopleSoft team to build Workday. It kind of made sense that they would focus on the human capital piece. And so Workday really has two uh, key products. One I'll call HCM, which is a human capital management product, uh, which was kind of the core um, product that they started with. And then the more newer one, which is Workday Financial Management, uh, I'll call it WFM. That's kind of more the product that SAP and Oracle are known for. The whole accounting center, everything finance related, that all the accountants use, all the finance department uses. And what's unique about Workday is that they do everything through the cloud. And so the two big, um, I'd say, classifications for ERPs is just on-prem, which is on-premise. So it's like all the systems are kind of actually in uh, the office building and it's all deployed there to have data centers there um, in the building, like of the, of the client site. And then the other is cloud where all the data and everything's stored in the cloud. And Oracle and SAP have traditionally been more on-prem. Most of their implementation work is all on-prem. Um, and they do have cloud products now, but when I think Workday first came in, Oracle and SAP are kind of still, um, I'd say, responding to this whole cloud threat. They were kind of slow, you know, classic large giants taking things slowly. And so Workday's uh, two main, the way they make money is through subscriptions and professional services. Subscriptions is the main way. It's about um, 85% of total sales. Professional services are about 15%. And the subscriptions are paid annually and they're contracted for three-year periods for most contracts. And the payment happens a year in in advance. So for the year of 2020, you would pay in January. And that kind of covers you for the rest of the year, which is pretty good if, um, you know, you're in this kind of COVID-like situation where everyone's trying to defer monthly rent payments and monthly like debt payments or even monthly software payments. Because if your clients already paid everything a year in advance, there's nothing to really defer unless it really falls on that particular time period of the quote-unquote tough month, then they might defer for the entire year. Um, but in most situations, Workday just has a full year's worth of uh, deferred revenue to work with. So that's just cash that they got, and so they can use it to reinvest in the business. And I noted that um, the two products is HCM and WFM. HCM, since it's the crux of the business, is still the good chunk. 81% of the subscription revenue comes from uh, HCM, 19% from WFM. And Workday's main client base are, I'd say, the large enterprise customers, although they don't have a concentrated customer base. So they say less, um, there's n- not a single customer that has more than 10% of uh, sales tied to them. But that could still mean that one customer could represent as much as 5% of sales. So keep that in mind. They didn't deny that. But they tend to target, they say, large and medium enterprises, but I think 
they probably make the most money from the large enterprise cu- customers. Um, most of the sales are from North America. I think something like 75% of the revenue roughly is from North America and the rest is from outside the um, the rest of the world. In North America, they have more than 2,200 customers and in the rest of the world, they have more than 600 customers. So that's a pretty decent amount of customers. The revenue is spread around, so they're pro- the concentration risk is probably pretty limited. In regards to the market uh, penetration, Workday has a roughly about 40% market share of the Fortune 500 companies in the HCM line. So their bread and butter is human capital um, management products. And so they have a 40% market share, at least in the cloud-based segment for Fortune 500 co- companies. They have 50% of the Fortune 100 and about 20, 25% of the market is taken up by the other cloud vendors, which includes SAP, Oracle, smaller players like Ceridian, uh, Coupa, Ultimate Software. Those guys are more smaller and they target the medium uh, SMB type companies. And yeah, that's kind of how the market's kind of segmented. But something I want I want to note is that when Workday first started, they really focused on specific industries. Um ERPs really, I think, when they all get big, they kind of all have very s- similar products eventually. But when they started, Workday focused on a particular niche. So they focused on healthcare and energy, and they built um, a HR software tool that really catered to that particular industry. And then they expanded into professional services and financial services um, by ha- continuously having a kind of more simple, out-of-the-box kind of software. Um, Oracle and SAP products are more known to be able to be customizable and they can get really intricate, whereas Workday kind of went the other way where it was more simple, easier to use and more applicable to kind of general businesses that were less complex in nature. At least that's what my Workday consultant friends tell me. (laughs) None of this was actually shared in the annual report, unfortunately. Um, But kind of getting back to the main point of the whether there is a sufficient market potential for Workday to continue to increase in size. Um, sufficient, sufficient is sufficient and, you know, how fast they grow is all up to everyone's interpretation. But if we look at historics, um, Workday has grown revenue over the last uh, five years at like a 33% CAGR. So they're a relatively fast-growing company for a business that's at something like a 41, 42 billion enterprise value um, company. And one can say, I think that there still is ample room because, um, you know, they're not even halfway into the Fortune 500, which kind of is their target market. And obviously they're not going to really get all of it because there are other players involved, other really large players, I might add. And... Although they are first to the cloud, I think eventually others are kind of catching up. And given how um, ERP sales, at least for large companies, have a really long sales cycle, anywhere from like six months to 18 months. And then you have probably like a four, you know, I guess maybe more of a, it also depends on size and complexity. But on average, I'm going to say something like a two to three year deployment period to actually implement everything, train everyone just the whole process there. So you're looking at a full like four to five year process. Um, So it's not that easy to, I think, quickly take market share. 
I think the opportunity for Workday is in the global market, um, which Workday calls the G2K, the Global 2000. And in that market, Workday has a 17% market share and 13% is taken up by the other HR uh, cloud vendors. So then that kind of makes it, gives them a 70% opportunity space and they've historically had a win rate um, in HR ERPs of about 60%. So they're pretty confident there. But obviously, there are also, I think, um, cultural challenges. Like I know, for example, like in Korea, there's a special ERP company in Korea that creates software that's designed for Korean financial systems that work differently from uh, North America. Despite using IFRS, we still have different ways of communicating financial information and using our language in a different manner. So people will opt for the local ERP and Oracle and SFU might compete with it, but um, it would be hard, I think, for a less established player like Workday. That's just one example. And I know um, there are other ERPs, and I think it was like Sweden, where they have special contracts with the big four um, so that they can actually implement inside companies and compete against SAP and Oracle, although this is a pretty small company as well. I f- I, I'm blanking on the names, but um, given I, how I know about these kind of niche small markets, I think it'd be hard to say that Workday will take all of the 70%, but I think there is a decent um, opportunity set out there. Not to mention that they are kind of new still in the financial ERP space. And if they can find a way to continuously um, upsell such cross-sell their existing um, HCM customers into also adopting the WFM products, then I think that can be a pretty, it presents them with a reasonable chance. Like one thing um, I've, I'd like to know about Workday is that they've continuously expanding their total addressable market. Like when they first started, HCM was something like a $11 billion industry. Like even back in 2014, it was about an $11 billion industry. But, and that industry slowly grown to about $18 billion in 2019. But what they've done is continuously add on more products. Like they've added on payroll, they've added on projects, they've added on financials, they've added on analytics. Now they've added on planning just with more acquisitions, more internal product development. So, um, comparatively, in 2014, they had what they considered like a $58 billion addressable market. Now in 2019, it's become an $88 billion uh, addressable market with something like a 8.7% CAGR over the last uh, five years or so. So considering that, I think um, the market expansion isn't as great, but there definitely is, I think, sufficient room for them to grow, at least in uh, the next few years. 10 years out, I don't know. That's going to be difficult to say. They definitely won't be able to maintain, I think, the high growth rates for sure. Unless they find a way to increase prices um, given its annual subscriptions. But we'll have to see. Checklist number two. Does management have a determination to continue to develop a determination to continue to develop products or processes that will still further increase total sales potential when the growth potentials of currently attractive product lines have largely been exploited? Yeah, so the growth alignment, is there long-term long-term hunger in management? Well, uh, if we think about the incentives, the co-founders, Dave and Anil, um, they both have pretty significant interest in the business. They own 77% of the voting control through Class B shares that are not on the market. The things you can buy in the stock market are Class A shares, which they have less than 1% of collectively. But if their Class B shares were to convert um, to Class A shares on a one-for-one basis, 
which is the conversion uh, conversion rate, then the co-founders would collectively have a 32% of the outstanding shares. And also uh, Anil Buzri, he is 54 years old, so he's probably in no hurry to retire. And Dave Duffield, he probably could retire since he already sold PeopleSoft to Oracle once. Um, and this is kind of a second foray. But I think there's definitely a bigger element of them wanting to build this out. There's, I think one thing um, people might cite is the kind of friction tension between Workday and Oracle. Um, Larry Ellison and the Workday co-founders have had some tension. Um, I remember back reading about how the PeopleSoft acquisition was kind of more of an aggressive takeover by Larry Ellison. Um, and so that relationship never really started off well. And I think in one time uh, in the Oracle shareholder meeting, Larry Ellison called Workday public enemy number one. Um, so there definitely is a rivalry and I think there definitely is an element of the co-founders wanting to crush Oracle, but I don't know if that is their mission. Uh, the founders haven't, I don't, I don't believe Workday actually has a particular company mission. At least I couldn't find anything on their site nor their annual report and they don't even have a shareholder letter. So that's also been missing. But if I were to think about the long-term hung hunger, I think at least in management incentives that exists, um, the company also has been operating with negative income by gap measures for the last 15 years. So that means they're doing what typical Silicon Valley companies do, which is spend, spend, spend on to further growth. And so they've been putting a lot of money into product development and sales and marketing. Product development, I'll call it PD and sales and marketing S&M. PD is kind of R&D for them. And the PD and S&M segments uh, make up 75% of the revenue. And so that's kind of re the reason why they are at a operating loss every year. And management is kind of putting all that dollars to work. Um, a lot of it really is employee expenditures, like R&D and sales and marketing. Um, something to note, though, is that a lot of the expenditures, it's not just cash compensation, but a large part is stock-based compensation. I think 24% of sales is in stocks. And a total of 70% of the stock-based compensation is actually attributable to the two reinvestment divisions, um, sales and marketing and the product development. So yeah, I think they definitely care about um, attracting talent and furthering the development of the business through constant product development internally. Item three, how effective are the company's R&D efforts in relation to its size? So if I think about it, um, they've been able to grow sales 33% over the last four years. That's pretty good. They've been able to take on a leading share um, in HCM products in the cloud space. And all the while as kind of the new ERP company that kind of upended the existing Goliaths, Oracle and SAP. So in, in that aspect, it's like, okay, well, their R&D is pretty good because... Um, the HCM product was completely developed internally, and that is kind of the result of the R&D efforts. But if I wanted to look at it a little further in, I decided to do my own calculation, um, the way I like to look at how people invest in, uh, how companies should invest in people, and that is actually capitalizing um, how they invest in their human capital base. So capitalizing the employee compensation, I kind of estimate around 70 to 80% of the PD and S&M spend and capitalizing the kind of four years worth of expenditures because their equity compensation, which comes in RSUs, the restricted stock units, vests over four years. So given how these RSUs get forfeited to zero 
zero value if you don't stay for the full four years kind of makes me believe that they want their people to stay for four years. And I'm estimating that's how long product development would also take as well. So if I consider that, I kind of get a return on capital employed of something around 30% on average for the last few years. Pretty decent. Um, but if I also combine their capital allocation, so mainly M&A, by including goodwill and intangibles to my capital employed base, I get like a return on capital employed of something like a 20% average for the last few years. So I say their R&D efforts are pretty solid compared to their M&A activity and their kind of uh, current business position leads on to that conclusion. Item four, does the company have an above average sales organization? I'd say so based on what I just said about the R&D, which kind of includes the sales and marketing function. Something else I'd like to talk about, um, which I think is how I got interested in the company in the first place. This was about maybe five years ago. Um, back in my consulting days, I noticed how... Um, so, little background on consulting. Um, 80% of consulting work, I'd say, is... that For management consultants mainly is um, kind of a lot of like technology slash operational improvement improvement work. It's not really much sexy strategy stuff. No matter what your friends tell you, that really isn't what much of management consulting these days. And that's what the consulting, and consulting firms don't really care for that anymore either. Like you look at even McKinsey and BCG, they created their own technology arms and it's not sexy Silicon Valley technology. This is ERP technology implementation. And it's because those bring in the most amount of money for the longest period of time. Like you see, management consulting firms don't like to do agency-based work so often because it's unpredictable. They love SaaS as well. So how do you get SaaS equivalent? You sell four-year ERP deployment projects as a consultant. And so what that means is Deloitte or uh, PwC or like these kind of large companies will deploy Oracle, SAP, Guidewire, Workday, all these ERPs into companies and you get a nice fat sum of money for a four-year period and as a partner you've kind of made a big sale and you kind of can rest easy for a while and so at least when I was in consulting you had various consultants who kind of specialize in various ERPs like I had a friend who was a workday specialist another was an oracle specialist others were SAP specialists what I found unique between all of them was that the workday specialist had to actually go through training and get special licenses um, after taking this train uh, this exam after a full training course and these cost thousands of dollars that the firm actually pays for so they're continuously reinvesting in your education and so once you do that then you get to actually go on a workday project where you implement workday inside a client uh, client company this was not the case for any of the other ERP companies like I've worked on an ERP implementation myself although I'm not part of any techno. I wasn't part of any technology group, but given how 80% of my peers were all on some kind of ERP implementation, it only was kind of a matter of time until I got sucked into one of those. And these are kind of the typical uh, high monetary, like large in monetary sum, but really low in return on investment because no one really likes paying for ERPs and the budgets kind of get slashed and you kind of start competing on prices with other consulting firms. Um, but this is still a core part of Workday's sales team because their core strategy is to actually partner with these consulting companies and deployment com- uh, firms. And so they'll partner with a Deloitte, they'll partner with a PwC, 
he'll partner with like an Accenture and those consulting companies will then go and start pitching these ERP softwares and they'll kind of do it sometimes together and that's how they kind of win the sale. So in that aspect, I think Workday has this kind of really unique stickiness factor um, that kind of compounds a consulting firm's desire to focus on selling more Workday work because they invest in these consultants that have these special licenses that also cost um, on, I think, an annual basis to renew. And these consultants become these specialists specifically for Workday projects. And so usually people are Workday consultants, um, even inside a management consulting firm, will only be able to do Workday projects. Whereas you'll see like Oracle guys doing strategy work sometimes or SAP people doing operations work sometimes and not just ERP implementations. So that I think kind of adds to their strength as a sales team. Item number five, does the company have a worthwhile profit margin? Um, I'd say so. By gap measures, nope. And they do this weird adjustment to the operating margins that I don't agree with because stock-based compensation is such a huge part of their business. And although technically it's not a cash expense, I still think you can't ignore it. But if I were to capitalize their kind of reinvestment function, the PD and SNM expenses, I do get something like a 40% margin on the owner's earnings that I calculated. And but I think the most important thing is looking at the gross margins because on a 10-year basis, you're looking at an average 67% gross margin, which is pretty nice. Um, but something to note, I think, for the future is that this gross margin will probably continue to expand because the two segments of their business, the subscription and uh, professional services, the subscription side has an 81% gross margin, whereas the professional services side had a negative 8% gross margin. This was in um, 2019. And the subscription part will grow much faster over the long term. And I think that will slowly skew the gross margin to increase over time. And overall, that will help with improving uh, owner earnings margins going forward. So it can probably be even higher than 40% going forward as they also lessen their investment in uh, product development. Item six, what is the company doing to maintain or improve profit margins? Well, I would say this kind of hits the moat question. What is your moat? What's your competitive advantage? I think traditionally when you look at ERP companies, there's really two things. One is switching costs and the other is the brand. Um, first, very obviously the switching costs. ERPs are sticky. Like I said, it's kind of like a five-year marriage or five-year relationship, which kind of can feel like a marriage because of how contentious, it, contentious that whole process could be. And... Like a good ERP company, Workday boasts an average 95% plus uh, retention rate over the last five years. And I think this is actually pretty impressive given how it's a cloud product, cloud-based product, which takes less time to implement than a on-premise product. Um, so which also could mean that because it took less time to implement, it could take less time to pull out as well. Um, and given how the contracts tend to be on a rolling three-year contract, um, I'm not seeing much of a dip below 95% retention rate. So I thought that was pretty impressive as well. And so in that aspect, yeah, I think the switching cost is huge. Like once you implement your ERP uh, solution, it's something you have to use every day. Like your company runs on it. It's something everyone has to have kind of like an audit. Um, and it's, you pay a sum, you pay an amount for it. It's not an, so expensive that's going to cost the company arm and a leg but it's something you just have to do. It's kind of like eating your vegetables, brushing your teeth, something you just all have to do. 
But then there's the brand factor. This is where I think generally most ERPs are kind of like a commodity in some aspect. Um, like Oracle, SAP, Workday, really there isn't going to be that big of a difference in my opinion. Um, at the end of the day, people end up, like there's certain small factors like the fact that Workday is amazing at cloud, um, but really you're just picking between a handful and that's where the brand really comes in. Um, like ERPs aren't really the kind of things where people want to get fancy over. It's not like a product you want to look for the upside for. It's about risk mitigation. It's about protecting the downside. Like people in finance and HR, they're more risk averse. They don't really care to, um, you know, go for the shoot for the moon, get the moon shots with an ERP project. An ERP is just something you have to do. So it, the budgets are going to get constantly slashed throughout the project as well. So you just want to go for something that's trusty, reliable, and safe. Ergo, that means you care about the brand. And that's where Workday, I think, has an advantage. Um, given their current market share lead in the HCM space, they definitely have built a brand as a key provider of um, HR ERPs. And that can trickle into potentially cross-selling in the finance realm as well. Um, but if we think about stronger brands, SAP and Oracle definitely have that kind of trust, reliability, and safety factor. And But Workday definitely is pretty close, I'd say, to them. Seven, does the company have outstanding labor and personal relations? Uh, I think first glance gives an impression, yes, because in their proxy, like Madgen talked about how they're like the number one place to work um, in San Francisco, number one place to work in the UK. And they do it by like regions and how they're like the number four in like the Fortune's Best 100. But then I realized that a lot of these rankings were based by one company called Great Plus uh, great place to work institute which i learned that workday is actually a client of because they have these weekly employee surveys that go out every friday which with two questions that employees are encouraged to fill out i don't know if they actually fill it all out i don't get the um, they haven't shared the fill out percentage but this survey is done by partnering with the great place to work institute so it makes me wonder is there a conflict of interest in how they have all these really high rankings so then I looked at Glassdoor, obviously, and I see a four out of five rating with something like 1100 plus reviews. And then I read, I figured I'll read a couple, you know, of the super really helpful quote unquote reviews. Um, and the critical ones talk about how there kind of is this HR practice of having a lot of interns and new hires write good reviews on Glassdoor and give it five star ratings to kind of inflate the results. Um, so that got me thinking, mm, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I'd say on conclusion, it's kind of just, eh, meh, this is an average rating company. The annual reporting proxy doesn't really shit for the light on the company other than the fact that it has the usual fluff. Our people are the most important. We care, core values, blah, blah, blah. Nothing really concrete. I read a couple um, interviews, articles, even Workday's own blog on culture. Not, nothing particularly new stands out. They have some leadership programs for people leaders. They recognize some people leaders. But overall, not outstanding. Like, if I compare it to Spotify, yeah, definitely not. Um, eight, does the company have outstanding executive relations? Well, I personally think no, because the co-founders don't even write a shareholder letter. I think that's a big no-no. Um, if you can't even, 
you you can say in your proxy statement all you want about how you care about shareholders, but if you can't take a few hours once a year to write a sh uh, shareholder letter explaining to me how you think about the business and trying to educate me further on it, then I don't really think you care about the shareholder. Um, I know that they're, the company is still run by the co-founders and their interests are pretty aligned long-term, but in some ways I go, mm, is it really though? Because um, Anil, he's a CEO, he makes $65,000 a year in salary, which is like, okay, woo, I like that. I like seeing a founder with a large interest in the company um, take very minimal salaries because, I mean, I think even up to like $300,000 is pretty reasonable because you have to make enough money to live on a yearly basis, which I think is fine. But what Anil does is he takes some $10 million in stock awards as well every year. And or nine to ten million every year, which makes you think, hmm. Well, you you own a large chunk of the business already. Why do you need to continuously award yourself all these restricted stock units? It just doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Um, I do like the fact that all the board of directors members don't receive any cash, and they all get something like three hundred thousand dollars in restricted stock units. It I think does align long term incentives, pushes away all the rent seeking. Board of directors, I just do it just for the cash payment. Um, but if I look at the rest of the executives, everyone's kind of making somewhere between 200 and 300K in salary. Um, the annual bonus is around maybe 100% of their salary. And then um, everyone gets something like, you know, 9 million in equity. And I get it, $42 billion company by US standards, it's not egregious. Um, I don't know, nothing spectacular. And there's no. The one thing that bugs me is that um, all the long-term incentives, which is like the $9 million in equity on average, is all in just four-year restricted stock units. So it just vests over four years, no performance element. The proxy says that there's kind of an internal measurement, but they're not going to share it. So no, not, not outstanding. Checklist nine, does the company have depth to its management? At the top, yeah, you got the co-founders. The COO has been there since 2007. CFO has been there since 2012. Um, but the other kind of leadership, no, a lot of them are new. Um, people who joined in 2017, 2018, a lot of new faces over the last five years. Um, I think the lack of internal promotion um, is just a bit of a turnoff for me. I just wish they had more of that. Like the company's been around for 15 years. Couldn't they have done that? is kind of my question. Number 10, are there other aspects of the business somewhat peculiar to the industry involved, which will give the investor important clues as to how outstanding the company may be in relation to its compet uh, competition? Well, one, uh, two quick things. One is that it was actually able to build a brand for itself. And as a company that only started in 2005, remember, SAP and Oracle have been around for a very long time. And so it's been a really hard industry to crack, at least in the large enterprise uh, world. So Workday's ability to crack that and build a brand for itself, I think is very impressive. And the fact that it's also being led by the guy who founded PeopleSoft, I think is a big um, plus for the business as well. So I think this just makes it really unique in that it actually decided to say, we're going to go hard at the enterprise level companies and tackle, uh, fight with the Goliaths, which many uh, ERP companies choose not to do. They usually focus on targeting SMBs because they believe Oracle and SAP has the upper large company market. The second unique, th unique thing is their sales strategy. The whole unique license deployed 
consultant model, I think is very unique. Um, Oracle and SAP don't have that. And I think this could add to the stickiness level, stickiness factor at even the partner sale, sales organization level, not just the ERP stickiness at the customer level. So this kind of adds a double layer of stickiness, which I think is unique. Um, item 11, does the company have a short range or long range outlook in regards to profits? Mm, I'm not definitively sure. I lean towards long range. They talk about everything in five-year increments. So I think that in, indicates a long range mentality. The fact that they've been losing money for the last 15 years kind of alludes to an idea of continuous reinvestment. But that's about it. Item 12, how good are the company's cost analysis and accounting controls? Uh, the disclosures pre are pretty weak. Not much was shared, so pretty weak, I'd say. Item 13, in the foreseeable future, will the growth of the company require sufficient equity financing so that the large number of shares and outstanding will largely cancel the existing stockholders' benefit from this anticipated growth? Well, from a liquidity position, they have a net cash position. They, the two major acquisitions they did in 2012, uh, 2019 were made primarily with cash. So one can say probably not. Um, their expenses are mainly people. They can kind of scale that back if they ever need to. But you can also say that they've actually been really using a lot of equity financing for a very long time, given how their stock-based compensation has historically been on average something like 20 to 25% of their revenue. So they've been using that to fund the continuous reinvestment um, and hiring and attracting talent. So in one way, they've been continuously relying on sufficient equity financing. Um, yeah, that's kind of my point there. Like I'm fine with equity-based financing, but I don't know. I feel like Rotate's at a pretty high level. Uh, item 14, does management talk freely to investors about its affairs when things are going well but climb up when troubles and disappointments occur? Uh, can't say much about it here. Uh, I haven't read any transcripts or earnings, call, uh, listened to any earnings calls today. Um, I usually rely on the shareholder letters for that. Um, so yeah, nothing on that. Does the company have a management of unquestionable integrity? Once again, no idea. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever reach that stage of the research. I think, at least given the initial that I've read about, I'm kind of uh, losing a little interest in the company. And item number 16, my personal that I've added in just on valuation, um, is the company a 10-bagger? Do I believe the company will 10x um, in the next 10 years or even, even better in the next 8 years? Uh, well, so one way to think about it is actually, well, the first thing I look at is kind of yield. Um, I like to look at investments kind of on an IRR basis. So I see something like a 3% yield on my own returnings. Others can look at it a little differently. Um, I think by traditional metric, you'll probably get less than a 1% yield. And by all measures, people will say this is kind of overvalued. Mm, I don't know about that. But if I were to think about the opportunity of can this become a 10-bagger? Possibly, but... If I looked at, let's say, the compet the competition and the market size, Oracle and SAP are three times, three to four times the size of Workday. And so for Workday to become 10x its size, it would, you know, eventually, I think, because the industry probably won't be growing at 30% a year. So they would probably have to eat away a huge chunk of what Oracle and SAP have. Um, 
and that also means kind of taking away customers through this uh, transi- transition period from migrating from on-premise to the cloud. Um, I think they can do a fair amount, but at the same time, I think it's pretty difficult. Um, I don't know if they'll be able to be a dominant player in the finance ERP. They are pretty big in human capital ma- uh, management, but that's only an $18 billion industry. Um, so I'm not too sure. Like, Workday sales right now is about $3 billion, and their total addressable market, they say, is about $88 billion. So could I see them have, you know, 30 billion of the 88 billion? Uh, it's, it's possible, but once again, it's, I think there's a good chunk of the niche market that they probably won't be able to address. Um, and so they'll probably have to be splitting with SAP and Oracle. And there are other companies that are choosing, I think, to go up market as well. Um, so I'm not as confident to say the least on Workday's opportunity to become a 10 bagger. Like, I'm, I think there are other companies that are growing fast in an underpenetrated and large enough market, but I think Workday is not one of those companies, despite, um, the opportunity for cloud implementation, but that's just kind of on the, the thought of whether it can be a 10 bagger or not. But it doesn't mean that it's a bad investment. Um, but once again, this isn't really an investment advice podcast. But that's just kind of how I'm looking at the valuation. Um, hope that was interesting. Hope this whole podcast was interesting and you learned something new about a brand new company that you never knew anything about before. And I hope to have you back again here tomorrow. All right. Take care.